Hi, and welcome to Unedited, the fortnightly podcast where we explore the opportunities and challenges the retail industry is facing. Brought to you by Vicky Giles at Grace Hill. From fashion, beauty and homeware, Grace and I will cover industry topics and shed light on how retailers can create a brighter future. Hello, Grace, and Happy New Year. Hey, Vicky. Happy New Year. A whole new decade. A brand new decade. Any resolutions for you, Grace? Uh, I'm not really one for New Year's resolutions. I'm, I'm not, I don't have great willpower and I'm not particularly good at sticking to them, but you know, same me, same old <laughs> shit. Um, but how about you? Yeah, no, no uh, New Year's resolutions, uh, just going to have the intention <laughs> to be better. Absolutely. <laughs> Note to self, go to the gym and eat healthier. <laughs> um, we sound like a merry bunch for 2020. We do. Well, we can't wait. A whole year of podcasting. <laughs> um, so what are we doing today? So this week, Grace, we're discussing the future of beauty and beyond makeup. How does the beauty landscape look today and how can you cater to the modern day consumer? What are the strategies and how has technology played such an important role in this business? And we'll be talking about the key factors that have contributed to disruptor beauty brands' growth and what brands of all sizes can learn from them and apply to their own business strategies. Today we have Sam Dover, Senior Beauty and Personal Care Analyst at market intelligence company Mintel. She's been analysing retail and consumer behaviour data for eight years and is now responsible for the researching and writing about the UK beauty and personal care industry. Sam actually hosts Mintel's Little Conversation podcast and regularly works with clients and press, providing insight and commentary on beauty, fashion and retail. Welcome, Sam. Hello. Nice to have you. Good morning. Okay. So, talking about beauty these days, it looks starkly different from even just a few years ago. We've seen recent reports um, announce that the global cosmetic market was valued at around $532 billion in 2017. It's actually expected to reach something like $863 billion by 2024. As far as you're concerned, what are the greatest trends impacting this huge growth in the market? So what actually we've seen is in the UK market, at least, we've seen these really kind of polarised performance of the two kind of core areas of beauty and personal care. So you've got, for a number of years, you've had categories like colour cosmetics and facial skincare performing really, really well. And then at the other end of the scale, you've got kind of the everyday toiletries that people are using are a bit more squeezed. People are kind of really cutting back. They're kind of looking for real value for money when they're buying those products. But actually what's really interesting is that after several years of seeing really amazing growth in, as I say, categories like colour cosmetics and facial skincare, actually um, sales of those products are kind of starting to slow, particularly in the value area. Value sales are definitely starting to maybe not retract quite yet. Um, So just to put it into a bit of context, in 2019, we estimate that sales of beauty and personal care products uh, rose by around 1.1%. But in 2019, we're only forecasting around 0.2% growth. And I think that just kind of shows that a real slow slowdown is happening for a number of reasons to be honest so um, in terms of skincare that, as, as we said that's kind of that's done really well because people are really starting to take an interest it's that kind of inside out element that people yeah. are really starting to be really image conscious because of social media usage and so people really want their kind of skin to have this kind of really glowing um, natural appeal but actually what we've now seen is that really informed consumers are really starting to actually trade down their purchases and they're actually kind of opting for what we're saying is like mastige brands. So 
brands that offer really premium products at kind of more affordable prices. So we're talking about, you know, brands like The Ordinary, um, things like that. So mm-hmm. consumers are really starting to inform themselves and are looking for active ingredients and, and are kind of making more kind of con- considered kind of decisions with that. And then on top of that, colour cosmetics is similar in that it's been performing really well, but actually growth has really started to slow down because you've got, in addition to you've got the kind of that interest in a really kind of natural, pared down beauty look, on top of that you've got a real emphasis on sustainability now and consumers are really starting to question whether they need whole assortment of yeah. colour cosmetics mm-hmm. so we're kind of seeing this shift away from what we call kind of fast beauty mm-hmm. where people are really starting to cut back because they're really conscious of waste they're conscious of buying a lipstick that they aren't going to completely use up they're conscious of buying eye palette palettes that have got lots and lots of yeah. colours in them and you don't use them all so I think there's a real kind of starting shift there as well in terms of sustainability is having a real impact on these kind of core categories Absolutely. Well, I was just going to say, we've seen this kind of like more like natural looks definitely influenced by kind of Gen Z, the whole Visco girl and how they're kind of influencing the consumers. Do you think this has had a big impact? Yeah, definitely. I mean, in terms of um, group, I mean, Gen Z only account for, I mean, in the UK at least, Gen Z only actually account for around 15% of the total population. So they're a real small group, but they do have clout. They're really digitally savvy. As I say, they're kind of, they're one of the key consumers that are really empowering themselves with knowledge. They're really using kind of all the, you know, the online tool as a device to kind of really make informed purchasing decisions. And we're seeing this across a whole variety of categories, but certainly in the beauty industry. And what these brands, what these consumers are willing to do is they're really willing to call out brands for bad behavior they're really willing to call out brands boycott them and sustainability is really important to them and I think that's you know definitely a big a big thing in terms of as you say Gen Z has such clout because they're so kind of active and they've got a voice and they really know how to Mm -hmm. use social media to its full potential. And how do you think brands can cater to that Gen Z consumer knowing that they have that voice? I think it all comes down to transparency Mm -hmm. They're not. They're not idiots. You can't. Yeah. You can't greenwash. You can't. You know. They, the wool will not be pulled over their eyes, so to speak. They really know their stuff. So I think it's about real transparency. It's about brands kind of saying, "Look, we aren't perfect, but we are doing X, Y, Z, and we are doing everything we can to kind of get to a certain point in terms of sustainability, ethics, things like that." So I think actually, it's really just comes down to that element of transparency is going to be really key. Mm-hmm. Have you seen any brands in particular that you think have done that well in terms of their communication strategy? Yeah, I think, you know, I think there's a lot. There's lot. Um, I think a great one is Milk Cosmetic. And they've got a really great section on their website that kind of really teaches consumers about the difference between things like cruelty-free and vegan and why those two kind of, yeah. those two claims are not necessarily linked. And I think things like that, you know, you almost giving consumers the kind of, the information that they need to make the decisions that they want, you know, what's important to them, what to prioritise. And obviously you mentioned that Gen Z is actually only around 15% of uh, the beauty market. How can brands cater then to those millennials and maybe that boomers market and who really is driving beauty sales? I think one of the interesting opportunities there is older consumers. The over 55 population is set to account for 
vastly more and more of the population and we're seeing that on a global basis as well so they're a real opportunity and they tend to be a bit more cautious with their spending but actually they feel really undercated to in the beauty industry and I think yeah. there's this element of this kind of this big focus on anti-aging things like that but actually it's about kind of pro-aging and how you really engage them so I think there's a great retailer um, brand slash retailer called I think it's Look Fabulous Forever they have this amazing website and it's full of such engaging content about kind of makeup application and skincare for older women yeah. and it's so engaging and it's such a really nice example of a, re- a brand really showing an understanding of their consumer what they need what they want and you know there's an element of you know only young people buy beauty online but it's not the case you know we're seeing more and more older consumers buying beauty and personal care online as well and actually kind of giving them that kind of relevant content is going to be so important so it's understanding those little needs you know where say for colour cosmetics you know eyeshadows things like that makeups can kind of sit differently on older skin and it's about kind of helping walking your kind of consumers through as they're kind of going through those changes themselves absolutely I think it's interesting isn't it because my mum especially she doesn't she wants to look age appropriate and I think sometimes when you see beauty brands and there's makeup or skincare that's on you know a 20 year old she's like well what's that going to look like on me and is that going to look wrong I want to look great for my age so I think that's definitely an interesting area isn't it yeah because we've seen we've seen lots of people kind of it's this big emphasis on diversity and inclusivity mm-hmm. in the beauty industry and obviously we've got lots of great examples now of like brands showing what different products look like on different skin tones I think yeah. Glossier have done it quite a lot where they kind of mm-hmm. show what a product looks like on a variety of different skin tones and and so why not show what a product would look like on a variety of people with different age skins things like that it's it's about really starting to showcase products um, in a meaningful way to as you say such a a wide audience of consumers. Absolutely. And more in terms of that millennial um, age group, are there any interesting insights that you've seen there on like how brands can really cater to that group? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, to be honest, a lot of um, millennials have adopted quite similar habits to Gen Z. They're a bit less vocal, they're a bit less, yeah. d- because of you know, a variety of factors, they're a bit more time-pressed than, say, maybe some Gen Z consumers, things like that. So they're maybe not quite as kind of avid followers of things like, you know, they're kind of not quite as passionate about things like sustainability and they've, they've got a bit of a brand loyalty with some brands that they've kind of grown up with and know and love but they are becoming more and more willing to experiment and kind of try different brands they're kind of they're very they're not necessarily the most brand loyal people in the world millennials so I think we're seeing them kind of switching around and experimenting a lot more with different brands millennials are actually the highest users of subscription boxes which I think really goes hand in hand with that idea of wanting to kind of test and experiment with new products now what do you think the future of beauty subscription looks like and, and where do you think brands should be investing in this area? Yeah, so it's a really interesting area of the market. So actually, it's really niche. It's, I think it's only about 6% of um, consumers in the UK have actually bought beauty and grooming products from a subscription service. So, you know, it's, it's a really, it's very, very niche, but the, the consumers that are buying into those kind of services tend to be quite passionate about them. I think what the biggest barrier to entry for most people in terms of subscription is a lack of personalization. And I know a lot of the yeah. brands have been doing lots in terms of, you know, questionnaires to kind of get as much information about their consu- their kind of, you know, users, subscription um, customers as possible. But actually, I think it needs to go one step further because actually I think the more you can personalize these subscription boxes, the more uptake there is always going to be because, as I was saying earlier, there's this element of, an eco-conscious mindset is setting in and I know that there's you know so many consumers will subscribe to these kind of subscription boxes but actually they find themselves after a few months inundated with 
quite an assortment of products that they don't necessarily, um, they're not necessarily going to use, they don't necessarily want. Mm. Um, so I think that's really that's a really interesting thing that almost some of the subscription boxes, I think they should kind of play on the element of like pass it forward. So they should really start to be thinking if you're going to subscribe to this box, who can you kind of pass on these products yeah. that, you know, don't sit on them, you know, they'll be... not for me, but not, I can pass It's not necessarily on. for you, but yeah. it might be for somebody yeah. else. I think we might see a little bit more of that coming into play. And obviously in terms of subscription, it's now expanded beyond subscription boxes alone and you're seeing kind of even like retailers like Amazon are really going for repeat purchases um, so I think Amazon has the kind of thing where you can subscribe to the kind of specific moisturizer you want and you subscribe for X amount of months and you get it at the price that it is at that point and yeah. you know so really tapping into that idea of value for money as well with subscription boxes and subscription services sorry I just haven't succumbed to a subscription box yet no I haven't either I just think that Again, I like what I like, and I also, again, I just think I might be inundated with stuff that's just going to clog up my bathroom shelves that I might not use. But I think it would be really interesting to see that kind of whole pass it forward um, movement within beauty and how that would work and how comfortable people would feel with, you know, kind of moving that stuff on. We talk a lot about you know, we've been talking at this particular time of year about Christmas jumpers and what a kind of nightmare they are for um, mm. for sustainability reasons and actually pass it on being a really good thing for the that whole um, situation and, and, and kind of addressing sustainability there. It's just, I think it'd be really fascinating to see where that goes for beauty. I guess has, we haven't seen, it'd be interesting to look at the sustainability message that these subscription services are offering. I don't think I've personally seen that as a message out there. Yeah, I can't remember which brand it is, but I think there was I think there was one brand recently that's um that has started organising kind of swap shop type things. Um, especially with because obviously it comes around again at this kind of time of year with yeah. it, in the build up to Christmas because obviously you've got this ad- advent calendar trend that seems yeah. to have exploded and that's a similar thing where you're going to end up with 24 products that you haven't necessarily gone out to buy and made that conscious decision to buy that product so you might end up with you know quite a few of those that actually you don't necessarily want to want to kind of use mm-hmm. and as I say so I think you're kind of going to start to see more of these kind of like swap shops come into play where you're kind of encouraging people to swap and share those different products I think it's going to be interesting to see where that kind of heads We've kind of doing, been doing a bit of that in the edited offices, really. We've kind of got like um, a box in the office where people bring like beauty products that they necessarily don't want, but people can then use it like in the bathrooms, like a bit of hairspray yeah. or, yeah. Um, you know, all sorts. So Sam, we've seen growth slow in the value area of the beauty and personal care market. What's really driving that? So I think it's really interesting. I think there's a number of factors coming into play. And as I was saying earlier, you know, there's this element of for everyday toiletries, people want value for money. And that's a habit that has been around since the last recession. During the last recession, consumers very much when they were buying their everyday toiletries were seeking out kind of exceptional value for money and that's where you saw the rise of the discounters things mm-hmm. like that so you saw a real shift in where consumers were buying their beauty products and at what price point and then on the flip side of that during that recession you saw the prestige beauty market perform really incredibly well because it became an affordable treat at a time when consumers were a bit pinched for cash so you might not be able to afford to go on holiday or buy you know a new handbag but you could afford to buy that nice new lipstick to kind of boost your morale and I think that kind of 
trend stuck around for a number of years but actually now what we're starting to see is that mindset of the kind of of the consumer the consumer mindset when they're buying everyday toiletries is kind of maybe starting to infiltrate the beauty industry a little bit as well so categories like the cosmetics, facial skincare, that in recent years have actually performed incredibly well and seen massive value growth. There's a bit more of a pinch there because as consumers are informing themselves and empowering themselves with more knowledge, they are switching to slightly more affordable brands. So again, it comes back to that the rise of mastige brands. So the rise of brands like The Ordinary, Glossier, and what impact they've had because they are offering what are really kind of quite premium products in feel and actually what they're offering is those kind of premium products at a more affordable price point so it's going to become really challenging for those kind of prestige brands to justify their price point again now Mm. and so that kind of comes into the fact that they're just going to have to keep keep innovating and they have to have they have to be able to have they have to have products that are not available you know lower down the market and I think that's going to be really interesting to see how that kind of plays out as we go forward yeah So beauty has historically been dominated by kind of brick and mortar purchases. Um, How do you think the kind of the impact of those direct consumer brands like Glossier has had with different beauty sales channels? Yeah, I mean, I think they've definitely had a a great impact. So I think it's, it's been, it's really encouraged people to shop online. So I think what's been really interesting about a lot of the D2C brands offer great value for money. And mm-hmm. it comes back to that idea what I was saying about kind of because a lot of them are positioned within this kind of massive area where a really kind of affordable price point comparative to some kind of prestige product. Yeah. But offering that kind of real premium feel. So you've got kind of packaging that's quite Instagram worthy. Yeah. And you've got products that, you know, formulas that kind of would traditionally only have been available when you were buying prestige brands. And so I think what that's done is really encouraged, as you say, kind of particularly young consumers to experiment and to, it's kind of driven, it's helped to really drive online sales. So I think our re- most recent research is that, you know, 46% of beauty and personal care consumers have shop have bought products online in the last year. And so you can really start to see how it's really starting to gain momentum. And obviously there'll be an element of repeat purchasing in there, but there is an appetite there for it and people are definitely becoming more accepting of shopping online. I've switched, like I have completely switched to buying it all online. And I will say Glossier is like the, the number one brand in, mm-hmm. in my in my kind of makeup bag at the moment because uh, I was amazed by how easy it was to select the product mm. that was right for me with all the kind of different skin tones that they have available to, for you to for mm-hmm. you to kind of browse and, and look at. And I made one purchase because, you know, I was a little bit you know nervous about whether it would actually work, but it, it did work and it's just it encouraged me more and more and that literally my entire makeup bag is taken over by them. I think it is, it's, I think as well, that experience that they are offering for that online um, user, the fact that it's quick, it's easy, but also of that Instagrammable package that arrives, okay, you've got that pink bubble wrap little pouch from Glossier, you want to take a photo of it, they're pr- maybe providing s- stickers or something like that, which maybe is different to the in-store experience, but they're still getting something from, from that. I think... It's interesting, though, with brands like Rihanna and Fenty, where they offer 50 shades of foundation, or we have Diana in our office who's been having a real challenge with lip liner colours recently and buying those online. How can brands really reduce friction of online beauty purchases through tech and kind of supporting, especially around colour matching, maybe? Yeah, so I think one of the big, big things that um, obviously a lot of 
brands and retailers are focused on at the minute is augmented reality, AR. Yeah. So, you know, I feel like there's so many different um, different kind of retailers, brands experimenting with AR, but it's, it's just the usage isn't there. There's still a resistance amongst consumers. So actually, I think what our data shows is that only 8% of UK consumers have actually virtually tried on makeup or hairstyles in the last year. Wow. So actually, usage of it is really low, which I think really shows that the technology just isn't quite there yet in terms of it yeah. being a truly useful tool to you know help people shop online so I think there's definitely still more work to do there because it's obviously a great opportunity but I think there's still more work there for consumers to really trust it and see the use of it um, but on top of that I think in terms of helping consumers shop um, online for beauty I think we're seeing much more emphasis on kind of a lot more emphasis on guidance, a lot more emphasis on AI, using, you know, kind of really using different tools mm. to help them, guide them to write the right, towards the right choices. And, you know, it's obviously colour cosmetics is quite kind of unique in the fact that you can kind of virtually try it online. But for things like skincare and that, you, you can't. You need to start relying on things like reviews and maximising mm. reviews. And we actually saw a really great... Um, thing launched recently, I think it's Mira it's called, and um, basically what this does is it uses AI to analyse product reviews, beauty product reviews online, and it actually turns them into short, kind of easy to understand descriptions, so it's kind of going to be, a, it's a search wow. engine, essentially like Google, but for, especially for beauty products, so it's going to make it really kind of inter- wow. in, easy to find, kind of, and really kind of easy to digest all that wealth of information rather than having to trawl through Amazing, so, so rather than relying on the, 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 the brand's kind of description of what like marketing description of what their product is you're you're actually getting a description from real users yeah amazing yeah that because i think sometimes you can click on a product and we have like a thousand plus comments so it's amazing that you can then aggregate all that information and see okay what's the summary what's the total roundup of that yeah Um, and see it in the eyes of the consumer so how are we seeing customers then purchasing color cosmetics Online, Are we seeing them going into store first, getting colour matched, going back online to then purchase and then continue their repeat uh, process? Or are we seeing kind of a trial and error and seeing an increase in returns? Because we know that that's hugely costly for different brands and retailers. I think it, I think it's the first one. I think it's that real kind of it's that element of multi-channel purchasing, and I think yeah. it's something that we, I mean, we've been drumming on about it at Mintel for ages because there's been this kind of real rhetoric out there recently of the death of the high street. Yeah, you know, <laughs> online sales are growing, stores sales are declining, and I think what that really fails to recognise is how influential both channels are to one another. Yeah. Um, and we've got some great stats on consumers saying that they kind of quite often will go into a store first and then make a purchase online and vice versa so consumers will browse online and then they'll go into a store and I think obviously in the beauty industry that is such a kind of you know that's so important you know I think it's 67% of um, consumers in the UK think there's no substitute for trying out a beauty uh, beauty or personal care product in real life wow. so there's definitely an element that this consumers still want the stores there but yeah. they just might not commit to that final purchase in a store they might kind of want to go away think about it and then order it online and the real kind of conversation then comes into play is where was that sale made because yeah. if they hadn't gone into a store and seen the product tested it out they might never have bought it in the end in the end so I think it's retailers definitely need to be considering about how those two channels kind of work together and really making it yeah Yeah, they're symbiotic aren't they I guess they're 
influencing each other, whether it's research online first to then go in store or trying and then purchasing online. Yeah, and I mean, because it's something that you see lots of, I mean, there's lots of kind of specific brands kind of really utilising the fact that it's just the fact that the role of the physical store is changing. Mm -hmm. And actually, stores are more becoming almost like a marketing tool. It's more almost like a branding tool to kind of engage your consumers so you know you're seeing it you know in the fashion industry brands like Nike have been great at it but then on on a beauty level you're seeing kind of what were traditionally online only brands like Glossier you know experimenting with these kind of physical presences because they are so important to consumers and they can't they probably always will be. So what do you think is going to make these brick and mortar investments successful from both the sort of brand positioning and sales perspective? Brands really need to recognise that stores have almost become kind of like a, you know, as I say, a tool for to kind of entice your consumers. And mm-hmm. I think what we're going to see is this real shift away from kind of, there's an element of there's so many consumers that go into a store and they might want help or they might not want guidance from. So it's yeah. this real element of you kind of go into a beauty hall sometimes and you're faced with kind of particularly pushy staff who just want you to make that purchase there and then. I think what you're going to start to slowly see is this shift away from it. So I think a great example in Europe, Sephora experimenting with colour-coded shopping baskets. You go into a Sephora store and if you pick up a red shopping basket, it means that you... Leave me alone. Leave me alone. (laughs) And I think, and then if you pick up a black shopping basket, it means I'm open to a bit of help here. It's the little tools like that that I think are going to really... It's a real understanding of that different mindset because yeah. some and even because it's different depending on the day you know you can go into a beauty store one day and you might just want to head down mm-hmm. not speak to anybody and then one day you might go in and be like I really want a new blusher but I have no idea where to start yeah. yeah and so I think it's it's understanding that journey and I think it's really about kind of experimenting and just innovating and just trying out different kind of in-store experiences mm-hmm. that you know could be used to engage it so I think one of the um one of the highest levels of interest in terms of like in-store innovations amongst consumers is product demonstrations. So going right back to those kind of really traditional, you know, you've seen it in kind of yeah. things like electricals and, you know, you could, you've seen in kind of doing showcasing hair dryers and, you know, things like that in department stores. Yeah. And it's, I think it's about kind yeah. of bringing that element into stores as well. So it's, it's not necessarily one-on-one, a quite pressurised service where you kind of feel, if you're getting a makeup consultation, mm. you can sometimes feel a bit pressured to go and then buy. It's about kind of putting them on for people to kind of stand and watch and maybe yeah. then kind of start to think about whether they want to kind of commit to certain products. I think it's, it's about understanding how a consumer feel, actually feels when they're in a store and what kind of service and experience they want, I guess. We've been seeing that recently with the air wrap in the yeah. um, the Dyson store on Oxford Street, and the fact that you know you can go in and go and have that demonstration or see it in use, and how much that's kind of really been of interest, especially to people in the edited offices. <laughs> see how it works. Been a lot of air wrapping happening. Absolutely. Recently. But I think also that kind of demonstration thing. Um, yes, it's it's good to see it store, but I'm also seeing that on Instagram and online and stuff, and a lot of like influencers showing um, how their glam is done by their makeup artist and. And, and that's, I think that's a really interesting way mm-hmm. to kind of take things as well, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. and there's definitely still, there's opportunities there as well to kind of, as I was saying before, it's, there's opportunities there to kind of link up those two channels. So it's about kind of having that wealth of content that's available online. And it's about starting to showcase some of that in stores yeah. as well. You know, because you just, you don't have that at the minute. So it's about kind of, one of the primary reasons why people shop online is because there's kind of got more access to more information. Yeah. And so if you can kind of then find a way to kind of deliver that in store as well, then you're kind of always going to, you know, that's definitely going to give you some success. 
I feel like you see more of it, don't you, where they bring in their kind of those influencer makeup artists or those people that have, have a huge presence online into stores, into mm. those flagship stores, come and see a demonstration of how they're creating this look. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think that's interesting, like going away from that one-on-one maybe um, tutorial that you can get at most beauty halls and then how do you open it up to a wider audience and... In a less intimidating kind of environment. Or pressurised even. And I think, obviously, we've seen kind of a huge revamp uh, trend in terms of beauty halls and department stores. Like, we've seen it um, at Coles in the US. um, And then, obviously, in the UK, we've seen, like, Camp Harrods. And Boots is a new concept store that they've launched. What do you think is really driving this? Yes, I mean, there's a number of factors. So, for Boots, I mean, it's Boots is struggled with it's a really mature business it's been really battling Mm -hmm. with its maturity in recent years and it's starting to recognize that actually it needs to start to really engage its consumers again Mm -hmm. in order to kind of fuel that growth so I think that's really interesting example of a kind of really mainstream player now thinking actually our in-store experience is is important like they are important we need to make sure that we're kind of capturing those consumers and you really want to be because as I say the the market is definitely looking more challenging now and I think there's an element of you kind of have to if you're not kind of if you're not giving customers that kind of experience then you are at risk of losing out to you know to other retailers Mm -hmm. that are now so I think it's just about kind of expectations rising consumers are more demanding than ever before and they want an experience if they're going into a store to you know to potentially make a purchase particularly in a category like beauty that's so emotionally driven yeah. you kind of have to be offering a certain level of experience now you mentioned they're a very kind of heritage british sort of retailer how can legacy brands people like estee lauder lancome compete with these kind of cold glossiers and drunk elephants yes yeah, so i think it's definitely interesting there's a real shift at the minute brands that used to want to kind of dominate the beauty industry are definitely facing a lot more challenges than they've probably ever faced before. And I think it literally comes down to just innovation, new product development, and they kind of just need to A, be keeping on top of those kind of very fast-moving trends now. You know, the different, I feel like there's a different kind of trend ingredient coming mm-hmm. coming through all the time. So I think it's about kind of new product development. It's about understanding those trends and really communicating with kind of consumers in a way that is engaging you know I think there was I think across the luxury goods industry we've actually seen a real shift in recent years away from focusing entirely on exclusivity mm-hmm. and these brands are having to kind of take a step back and go no we can't be we can't feel too far out of reach anymore because that's not what the consumer wants so you've seen it you know you've seen it with like brands like Burberry and brands like that really starting to open themselves out and engage a much wider audience because actually a lot of sales of kind of luxury goods and you know going hand in hand with prestige beauty and not necessarily from just luxury consumers it's about making them feel engaged and welcome Mm -hmm. and you know really understanding that actually you can't it's not necessarily about playing on exclusivity anymore it's about kind of you know creating a desire without making yourself feel too far away from from the consumer yeah yeah absolutely um, so how can, we've continued to kind of hear through our podcast series that authenticity is critical to kind of maintaining cult status. So how can these really disruptive brands like Drunk Elephant maintain this when they've been taken over by those huge corporations? Um, 
So I think there's, I think there's an element. I mean, because it's, it's, it feels like at the minute there's definitely this kind of another day, another acquisition. I mean, in our mm. office, we kind of share emails of like the latest industry news, and it feels like every day there's a, there's an example of a kind of, you know, one of these disruptive kind of startup brands that's very much been kind of bought up by by the bigger players in the industry. So yeah. as you say, I think the biggest challenge for them is going to be kind of retaining that authenticity. And I think what it's really going to come down to is, you know, staying true to their values, not kind of and. And I think with that, I think it all comes back to that idea of transparency. You've kind of got to really be, you know, you can't pretend that you haven't been bought by a big company. It's kind yeah. of, it's about almost like acknowledging that and being like, we've been bought out by this company, but our values still stand and we're still very much, you know, working towards this and that. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're still, you know, that's not going to kind of disappear. Absolutely. I guess the benefit to the consumer of maybe more resource and how that impacts impact them yeah definitely it's but I suppose it, that it, with that it kind of opens up that conversation of actually we've been bought out by this big brand but we're going to start to try and help them yeah. and so you, you've definitely seen it where mm-hmm. you know these bigger brands are kind of taking on kind of you know some of these younger brands to kind of learn about more about kind of sustainability and you know learn from the kind of ones who are doing it the best so to speak yeah absolutely so here at Edited, we've been looking at data with regards to um, things like CBD and beauty, and that it kind of seems to be reaching its peak. It's maybe not necessarily the, the thing for the future to kind of concentrate on. Um, what do you think the next beauty trend is going to be that's going to dominate, and how can brands prepare themselves for this? So this is actually something that we, I mean, we've just, Mintel's just released our 2030 um, beauty and personal care trends. And it, it's so hard to define because it's so category specific. But I think what's really interesting is we're going to start start to see a lot more brands um, recognise the kind of polarised nature of consumers. And actually, what one of our kind of trends kind of speaks to is understanding this real interplay between different mindsets. So things like the interplay between nature and science. So people want natural. Mm-hmm products and ingredients but actually sometimes scientifically kind of created ingredients and formulas are actually kind of better for the environment Mm -hmm. better for you as a consumer and your skin so it's kind of about really starting to play and really understand those polarized performances and another kind of example is the interplay between emotion and information Mm -hmm. so are you an emotionally charged beauty consumer or are you an information driven beauty consumer and it's really interesting how those two kind of interplay and how people are not necessarily one or the other and one day they can be very information driven and then on the other end of it they're very emotionally driven and we did like a presentation in our office with to kind of get our heads around these new trends and it was all about kind of understanding so at the beginning um, one of my colleagues said are you emotionally driven as a beauty consumer or are you information driven? And actually, as the presentation went on, it kind of, you realise it changed, yeah. changes. And actually, it's kind of about kind of understanding understanding your consumer and understanding that on some things they're very emotionally driven, but actually on other things they're but kind of very... I was going to say, is it specific things? So, I don't know, for example, moisturiser, people are more scientifically driven or serums mm. and then more emotionally driven about your colour cosmetics and things. Did you see any kind of patterns with people just in the office? I think it's, it's, it is. It's, it's just so, it's so... It kind of changes all the time and I think actually it's, it's about most people are kind of powered somewhat by both so yeah. in my head I was like oh I'm definitely emotionally driven but then actually I've you know I'm one of those consumers that is you know researching new products like I think it's we've got a stat in Intel which is like 39% of female skincare users have sought out and researched yeah. new brands in the last year and the fact that they're doing that research means that they're probably quite information driven but then on top of that there's an element of 
emotion there because they are kind of caring and really understanding about yeah. they want to know more and understand and I think again it all it kind of it's about the brand and consumer relationship as well and really and how you kind of emphasize that and kind of hold on to that and build loyalty and build engagement as well I feel like it's these brands like The Ordinary who, if you're scientifically minded and that's what you want, those active ingredients, so brands like that really play into that. Mm. But then again, that emotional thing of the fact that it's so cost-effective and you can go, you can buy into that yep. type of product. So we've talked a lot about people's interest in the you know, active ingredients and things that are involved uh, within, within kind of the various beauty products that are available out there. Do you have an idea about what maybe the next big ingredient will be for people? So I think there's obviously there's more and more ingredients coming into play all the time and there's more brands and retailers putting a spotlight on different ingredients all the time and I think actually what that's doing is it's just confusing consumers and actually what I think is going to be interesting next is how retailers really help consumers navigate all of those different ingredients so it's not necessarily going to be about everyone's going to be buying this kind of beauty product with this certain ingredient anymore it's about helping consumers to find the right ingredients for their needs so I think one really great example is Feel Unique which is an online online only beauty retailer in the UK now has um, an ingredients section on its website which literally just informs consumers about all the different ingredients that are out there available, all these different active ingredients Mm -hmm. and what different benefits they have. So then consumers can really use that to kind of help them find the right products for them and they can really look for the active ingredients that are going to work for them, which I think will definitely be definitely where I think it's going to start to head is that with all this confusion, it's going to be about helping consumers to find the right ingredients for them. Yeah. How do you think brands can react to the rise in consumer demand for sustainable and clean products? So I think it's it's a really interesting one and I think it's one of those ones that it's so it's so difficult and it's so difficult for brands and retailers to approach because actually there is there's no universal definition for sustainable there's no universal Mm -hmm. definition for green for eco beauty for clean beauty and actually there's not there's not really very much regulation around any of these Mm -hmm. claims as well so actually what you're seeing is this this element of a lot of brands are claiming to be certain things but then actually whether or not they are as kind of sustainable as you think they are is very much in question still and consumers are really confused consumers are really confused about what they should be buying into um, and you know what the difference is between a, you know a green product versus a clean product versus you know mm. a, as I was saying earlier a vegan product a ethical product I think there's there's so much confusion there I think it's definitely going to start to come back to it's that education piece around what all of these terms mean mm. I think there's going to be a lot more pushback in terms of regulation I think we're going to start to see you know I think the EU have already said that they're going to start to very much be a lot more um, a lot bit have a crackdown on beauty brands wow. that claim to be um, certain things and are maybe misleading consumers. Mm-hmm. So I think there might also be an element of distrust that might build up around around this amongst consumers, and definitely they're going to def- they're going to be wanting brands to walk them through it and to give, make things make it as easy and as accessible yeah. as possible. So I think a great example in the UK is um, Cult Beauty are partnering with Provenance. Um, which is all about kind of killing greenwashing, so to speak, in the beauty industry and about really kind of making that kind of supply chain and, you know, 
pointing out how exactly how sustainable and yeah. ethical and eco-friendly brands actually are. So I think there's definitely going to be an element of transparency will be key. Interesting how Cult Beauty is managing that relationships with their partners and their the brands that they work with. Yeah, definitely. On their website. <laughs> the UK was recently announced as the cleanest beauty market in the world. What is backing that claim and what is a clean beauty market and what does that mean? So I'm not actually, I really am not sure about, you know, what, how you can ever claim that, you know, one specific beauty market, because especially because it's, beauty is such a global industry, you know, mm-hmm. products imported, exported, you know, I, re, I, I would struggle to understand how the UK market is the cleanest, it might be because UK consumers are quite digitally connected, so there's a lot of transparency around it. Um, but as I was saying, there's no real definition around what a clean beauty product is. Um, but I think what it comes down to is it's all about kind of chemicals and avoiding avoidance of certain chemicals and ingredients that are actually harmful to the user. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's definitely there's an element of such a huge demand for it. But I think what it comes down to is that consumers just want more information. They want as much information and knowledge about what they're buying mm-hmm. as possible. Mm-hmm. And we've all done it where you look at a beauty product and it's got a huge list of ingredients and you have no idea what any of it means. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to start to see a real shift away from that because consumers want to know what they're buying, where it's come from, who's made mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what it all comes down to. It's not necessarily about clean beauty is the way forward in the beauty industry. It's going to be about more to do with the fact that this is about informing consumers and helping them to make empowered decisions and making them help them to understand what they're actually buying into. Absolutely. I feel like there's some real running themes here around like trust and education and transparency ultimately is informing the customer. It's a thread that's been consistent through everyone we've spoken to in the past kind of Mm -hmm. six episodes of this podcast and I think it's just something that yeah, because it's, it's just all pervading, and it's all kind of it's across different sectors as well. I think it's not it's not necessarily about this is, you know, only in one mm-hmm. particular industry. It kind of that mindset is just spreading everywhere. And I think you've only got to look at say, for an example, how many of us now carry a reusable water bottle mm-hmm. when a few years ago we were all using. You know, it wasn't that long ago that you yeah. wouldn't think twice about buying a bottle of water yeah, not, you know and see that mindset is really starting to take hold and consumers are starting to really care about mm-hmm. what they're buying how their purchasing decisions are impacting the environment society so people are really starting to try as much as possible try and make better purchasing decisions and I don't think it's I don't think it's a kind of subgroup anymore it's yeah. very much a mainstream thing thank you for coming to see us today that's been absolutely fascinating it has been it's been amazing thank you so much thank you thank you for listening to unedited if you've enjoyed today's conversation with sam make sure you subscribe to keep in the loop with upcoming episodes it would make our day and our 2020 if you could rate review and subscribe to us you can get in touch at unedited at edited.com or tweet us at edited underscore hq and if you want to give us any insight into your new year's resolutions feel free goodbye goodbye